Good morning. Welcome. Uh, last week we started a short uh, series looking at the final seven final statements of Jesus spoken from the cross. Um, actually, if you take all of them together and walk through them, they actually they're they're a presentation of the whole gospel um, from start to finish. And last week we saw Jesus extending forgiveness to those who had held him down and drove the nails into his hands and feet and were sitting there indifferent at the foot of the cross. The fact that Jesus can speak out at all, much less pouring out forgiveness for his executioners, is uh, amazing. In our text this morning, we're going to look at two statements that go together. Um, Jesus puts aside his own personal needs. He puts aside his suffering, and he attends to relationships. He attends to the needs of others, and he makes himself present. We're going to look at the uh, criminal that's crucified next to him. And then we're going to look at his statements to Mary and to John this morning. Um, So we're going to look at the text for each one. I want to note a few things um, and then uh, kind of um, pull out a couple things to take home from that. On Good Friday, we we actually looked at the uh, the story of the thief on the cross. So some of this will be a bit of a review. And then um, we'll look at Mary and John as well. So we're going to start with Luke 23, um, beginning with verse 39. I apologize, I, have the, I put the wrong chapter on the back of the bulletin, but it should be chapter 23. Luke 23, beginning with verse 39. God's words for us says this. One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him and said, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. And see, from the other gospels, we discover that as they're, um, they're all three are, are nailed to crosses up there, and the uh, other Gospels let us know that both, both the criminals, both sides were mocking Jesus. Um, here they are. It's, just, it's kind of amazing to think um, in, in the worst possible moment of condemnation, they're still uh, spewing out these curses and towards the people below, but also towards Jesus himself. But a change occurs in one of them. As I shared on Good Friday, the Translation thief is not really the best translation for that word there. Although they, were, they did thievery, it was a much wider thing than that. The other Gospels identify them as criminals or thieves or robbers. The New American Standard calls them bandits. Um, they're pictured the way their society viewed them in the Gospels. We don't know their names. They were no one. Uh, just nameless faces marked by sin to be cast aside by society and executed. Thieves and robbers generally were not crucified, so the actual word describing these men would be better rendered like revolutionaries or insurrectionists, um, can mean evil men, is basically referred to those who would stir up a riot, and in the midst of the rioting, they they would kill and use it as an opportunity to plunder and steal. It's highly likely that these two men were partners of Barabbas um, and had been partners with him in what he had done. And they were guilty of insurrection and murder. And so now here is uh, Barabbas who gets freed and gets to go home. And his, the other two that were probably partners with him are, are being executed. 
with Jesus in the middle who had taken Barabbas' place. So what were they experiencing as these two men awaited crucifixion? Well, judgment for sure, isolation, um, perhaps regret, maybe not for what they did, but for where it, they turned out to be. Perhaps there's anger and resentment towards Barabbas who had led them to this and now was completely free and on his way. They were at the point that is way, way past a second chance. There's no coming down from where they are. They're on the brink of eternity. They're hated. Their, their lives have been completely ruined by sin. Um, there's nothing. As a matter of fact, the scriptures give us nothing. There's nothing that commends them. Nothing. And here they are, hanging naked, bleeding, tortured, and on the edge of eternity. And it tells us that they look to Jesus in the middle, and they mock him. They, they hurl insults at him. They belittle him. One of the men says, are you not the Christ? I don't think it was a statement of belief. It was a mockery. You said you're the Christ, and you're doing nothing. You're stuck here just like we are. It's a way of saying to him, all that you claimed is a joke. Look at you now. But the second man, at some point, quits mocking, and suddenly there's this silence. So we saw when we've looked through this section, we finished out Matthew, they were up there a long time. There's at least six hours here. Um, but they're on the cross. Um, what happens that changes this particular man? Perhaps they're just worn out. They've been yelling and screaming and cursing, and they're just exhausted and tired. Their blood has been flowing out. They're having trouble breathing. Their mouths are dry from dehydration. They're in the early stages of shock. And may, maybe perhaps there was just all of a sudden a moment of a half an hour or so where it just got quiet. They're not saying anything anymore. It's just all of a sudden, this is it. And they're up there knowing that this is the end. And they're in pain. And for this one man that we see the story of, there's something happens. Perhaps he had heard of Jesus before. Perhaps he had seen him. Perhaps he just noticed what Jesus was doing and through this whole process. But there's somehow a realization of a sin. He comes into touch with that the eternity is right in front of him. He begins to see that all of his corrupted life has become clear to him. And something of the truth of who Jesus is begins to wash over him in that moment. And this time he looks over at Jesus, not to curse him, but he looks over at him thinking, is there any hope for me? Is there any hope? And he somehow knows that there's hope in Jesus. Could there possibly be a love that great, that impossible, that amazing? And we see the gospel here, because the answer to that is yes. And it's been yes for all of us who know Jesus, and it was yes for this man who had nothing in his hands to give. And Jesus says these short words. He says, truly, I say to you, today, in this moment, here at this place, you are going to be with me in paradise. Truly, I say to you, today, you will be with me in paradise. Isn't that incredible? In just this, this moment, this is the power of the cross, in just this moment, this man goes from lost and corrupted and cast off, unknown, condemned by the world and God, to belonging and beloved, redeemed, 
justified, found, alive. All those things become his. A.W. Tozer once said that faith is the gaze of the soul upon a saving God. It's just the turning of a heart from our own ways onto a God who saves. And here in that darkness, in this terrible place, it happens for this man. And what I love is Jesus, who is in unimaginable pain and agony, and as we talked about last week, carrying the full weight of corruption for all time on himself, whatever that is like, he makes space for that man. When he gazes and he stops, he puts it all aside for that moment for this one person. And he speaks these words of redemption. Thinking of all the, pe- all the people he's dying for and all that he's going through and everything that's happening, he makes time and attention to speak to this man and give him something, what he needs, relationship with God. And he goes from outcast and alone to a member of a family. It's the family of God. And he's born into the household of God. It's incredible. Jesus always makes time, doesn't he? For people, all through the Gospels, he's stopping for individuals. Remember the the blind man who's shouting out and calling for attention. Everybody's telling him to be quiet, and Jesus stops. Or the woman who grabs behind him who wants to be disappear but wants healing and Jesus stops. He always has time for people. And in the worst possible place here on the cross, Jesus turns and he pays attention. And he makes room for him. Which is good news for us because that means he does the same for us as well. So this first interaction, interesting enough, is the gospel embodied. Salvation happens in that place. But what I love about it is there's relationship. Jesus makes space for relationship. The second section that we have here does exactly the same thing. In the midst of deep suffering, he lays aside his own needs and cares for the needs of others. Um, so this is the section with Mary and John um, out, of, uh, out of Matthew. So standing by the cross of Jesus were his mother and his mother's sister, and Mary, the wife of Clopas, and Mary Magdalene. And when Jesus saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. And then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. Remember we said Jesus has very few words on the cross, but they mean something. They matter. He gives attention to him. Woman, behold your son. And then to John, the disciple, Behold your mother. And it says, from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. So we have a number of individuals who are gathered around the cross. Um, they're close enough that they can hear what Jesus is saying. Um, I, I, I doubt if he was speaking anything very loud, just whispering, just getting it out. And they can hear him. From the other four Gospels, the other Gospels, we discover that at least four women and the disciple John were right next to the cross. And then there were some others who were standing at a distance. Um, we have here Mary, who's Jesus' mother. And then we have his sister, Mary's sister, actually. Um, most think that uh, Mary's sister was actually the mother of James and John, which would make the disciple John a nephew to Mary. At this point, Joseph has long ago passed away. 
Um, but the New Testament reveals that after Jesus was born, Mary and Joseph had, a, had four sons and at least two daughters. Um, the sons were named James, Joseph, Simon, and Jude. Um, if you know anything about that, James uh, comes to faith. He's actually, Jesus actually appears to him during the, after the resurrection, and James becomes a prominent leader of the early church and goes on to write the book of James. And then Jude wrote a book as well, which we know, he did a little short one called Jude. Um, but at the time of his crucifixion, it does not appear that his, his brothers were believing, that they had followed him. And it seems to have happened after the resurrection. So we want to picture what's happening here. Mary is watching her son. Um, she's close enough to the cross to hear, hear what he's saying. There's probably blood on the ground below her as it flows. She had been told in the beginning that Jesus would be called, he'd be called Jesus because he would save his people from their sins. And now she's watching this happen. Simeon had spoken to her and said that a sword would pierce her own soul also. And that's exactly what is happening here. She watches in pain and sorrow and agony and grief and loss. All the things that many of us know, the pain of losing somebody. And she's there watching it. Verse 26 says that John was standing nearby. The actual word for standing there is connected with John. And the, the, the construction there is not that John was nearby, near Mary, but John had come up alongside Mary to take care of her, to, to, to be with her, watching her in her pain, caring for her already. A little side note here. Remember in Matthew 20, um, the mother of James and John, if you remember that story, who's, who might have been the, the sister of Mary here at the cross, remember she came to Jesus and she said, when you come into your kingdom, I want my two sons to be one on your right and one on your left. And Jesus says, you don't know what you're asking, but um, uh, he says, then he speaks to those two disciples, James and John. He says, Do you, are you able to drink the cup that I'm about to drink? Remember what their answer was? They said, yes, we will. <laughs> and uh, Jesus actually tells them, you will at some point. They say yes. And I'm wondering what they're thinking at this moment. Perhaps the mother of James and John was there and looking, and on the right and the left are two thieves who are, who are dying with, alongside of Jesus. And maybe even John, as he looks up going, is this the cup that I was saying I could drink? And he probably thought he couldn't. And they're all watching this. They're there at the cross. And then what transpires is in the midst of this, he's spoken to the thief, and now he looks down. Uh, he's raised up above the ground, and he looks down, and he sees his mother Mary, and John standing next to her, weeping. And he says to her, woman, behold your son. The word behold is just look. <laughs> look, take notice. Um, it, it's, uh, it's a word to, to call attention to. He wants her to look up. I'll look up at him and see him. Interesting here, he calls her woman, not mother. I never called my mom. I said, hey, woman. <laughs> I, that would have been vacuuming forever if I had done that. <laughs> but it's not a harsh word here. It doesn't mean it in a harsh way. Even when he, uh, um, when he uh, multiplies the wine at Cana, he says the same thing. What he does here in this event is to care for his mother but in this first phrase, as he calls her woman, what Jesus knows, it's, it's more important that she understands that Jesus is her Lord. 
than that Jesus is her son. And Jesus knows in her pain and her suffering, it's going to be hard no matter what. But the main thing she needs to get is he is called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. He is the Messiah and her Lord. And he wants to get her to see that, to pay attention to that, to call attention to it. So he's calling her to move from seeing him as her son and looking upon him and seeing him as her Lord. Because that's where life begins. That's where God meets us in the midst of suffering as our Lord. Remember the scene where Jesus is ministering in a crowded house and um, uh, Mary, who's concerned that Jesus hasn't been getting his, his eating and sleeping, um, they, they arrive at the house and the crowd says, your, your mother and your, your brothers are outside. Come. And remember what Jesus says? The ones who obey me are my mother and my father's and my sisters, and my brothers. Because genuine family, the redeemed family, are those who obey him. It wasn't a mean thing to say. He was trying to teach them something. And the something is that Jesus came to create and form a new family. Remember we've talked about this, that God forms his family in the garden and says, this is what it looks like. If, if you want to know life, this is what it looks like. And Adam and Eve fail in that. So then God creates this other community, Israel, and he says, this is what it looks like. Follow my ways. I'll show you, and this is what life can be like, and they fail. And now Jesus come along going, well, everybody keeps failing the covenant, so I'm going to make a covenant with a new group of people. I'm going to keep the covenant for them as well as my part, which is what he does in the cross for us, and he creates a new family, the church. He came to form a new family, the redeemed, a family that actually supersedes his biological family, and he wants Mary to see that because this inauguration of this, this thing called the body of Christ, the church. When he says, behold, he wants her to look up at him. Reminds me of the uh, Israelites in the wilderness, and they have sinned, and they're all bit by these snakes, and people are all dying because of the judgment on their sin, and so God instructs Moses to make this, this bronze serpent, remember, and hold it up, And if they looked up in faith at that bronze sermon, they were healed. Jesus later on says that when the sun is lifted up, he is going to draw all people to himself. And so his first thing is he looks at his, his mother, who he loves and cares for, and calls her to look up to the Son of God, because that's where life is found. But he's not unconcerned about what happens the next day the day after that, and the very, very real needs and things that happen in our life. So the first thing, loving thing Jesus does for his mother is to direct her to himself and the cross, because that's where life comes from. But then he shows his love for her by taking care of those very, very practical needs of day-to-day, which God cares about as well. We heard that from Jan. God cares about kittens. And it seems so drastic at one or the other, but that's the way our God is. He is we are whole, whole people, and he cares for our, our spiritual needs and draws to himself, and he cares for the things that happen in this day. So he speaks to John. He says, behold, what does he say? Your mother, your mother, because that had needs there. And from that hour, the disciple took her to his own home. It appears that John actually had a residence in Jerusalem, and it's very possible that actually at that very moment he took her with him so she wouldn't have to watch any more of what was taking place. And he looks at John, who's already shown compassion and care for Mary, and calls, says, behold your mother. He doesn't ask him if he's open to that. 
He tells him. He says, pay attention. Behold, she is now your mother. Um, statements like this in that culture that were made in a public setting like that would become legally binding. And so in that moment, this, this legal transaction happens where John takes responsibility for Mary. As the oldest, Jesus is responsible for the care of his mother. And as a widow, she would have had very, very little means to care for herself. And so Jesus entrusts that to John. And John does it. Our daily needs matter to God. What happens in the morning when we get up and our interactions with our kids and providing for our, our just basic things of, of living and the things that happen at work and our relationships in our homes, he's invested in all those things. And Jesus puts again here, just like with the thief, all that's going on for him at that moment, which is impossible to comprehend, he puts it all aside for a moment and he attends to a relationship. He attends to the needs of his mother. Makes sure she's cared for. Interesting, John gets another mom and Mary gets a new son. Interesting, right in that moment, a new family gets formed, a physical family of John and Mary and this home. One question comes up is, why didn't Jesus entrust her to the brothers? It may be just that they weren't there, but it's more likely just the fact that they were not followers of Jesus then. John had already stepped in and, 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 and showed that he was ready to care for her. I think it's likely that we're being taught a lesson here. Family matters. Our biological family matters. God cares deeply for the family unit, unit, but there is a family that even supersedes that. And those who hear that, um, that came to Christ and your extended family does not know Jesus, um, and yet you found a place in God's family and his church, know what that's like to have a, a family that comes together, this new family, the church. And with all its failings and all its flaws and all the way we fail so often, this is the community that God came to give his life for, to create the family of God, the household of God. And here we get a glimpse here as Jesus entrusts Mary to John. Interesting, isn't it? This, this, this new community of the church, um, which probably has um, blessed us, and for many of us, we've experienced hurt in it as well. And it's this community that, Jesus comes and he gives his life to bring redemption and he forms us together and he says, this is a family. Treat each other like a family. Your brothers and sisters are all part of the household of God. And in the end, it's those connections that are most dear to God's heart um, as we care for one another. So two things here that we learn, I think. By the way, it's interesting, after Jesus takes care of his mother, that's when it says, now Jesus, knowing that all things were done, he took care of everything he needed to take care of. And he's ready to take that final step, which we'll look at in the next two weeks. Two things that came to mind for me. Real simple. Jesus is willing and able to care for us. Is this he's on the cross, and he's caring for people, all the needs they had. We actually matter to the God of the universe. 
In his moment of agony and need, he was intent on caring for his mother. And if he loved and cared so deeply for her, how much more of those who he has redeemed with his very blood, which would be you and I. He says that he loves even more all those who would follow and obey him. Those are his mothers and fathers and sisters and brothers. He calls that us that. In his moment of agony, he took care of a, the soul of a nameless rebel who had nothing to offer, zero. And Jesus cares for his deepest need. And not only that, in his time of greatest weakness and humiliation, um, he's able to supply everything that's needed for his mother. So how much more could he provide for us? Ephesians 1, 19, 20 says, What is the immeasurable greatness of his power towards us who believe? According to the working of his great might that he worked in Christ when he raised him from the dead and seated him at his right hand in heavenly place. The statement is there. When Jesus was raised up from the dead, all the power of the resurrection is afforded at both for us and for him to meet the immeasurable needs that we have. It's, it's like his ability supersedes and is, is way over and above our greatest needs all put together. And even on the cross, he was able to provide that. Philippians 4.19 says, My God shall supply every need of yours according to what? His riches and glory in Christ Jesus. There's, I'll tell people, says, I want to help you out, but I've, I've got limitations of what I can do, right? It, it, it dries up. There's only so much to do. And God has no end here. Really simply, it's just so simple. Jesus is willing and able and desiring to care for our needs. And there are so many needs here. Um, and we have them all the time. And they're small, and they're great, and they're overwhelming. And some things seem impossible. And this lesson on, on the cross is in this worst moment. Jesus looking to meet needs in his own way, in his own time. And he's willing and able to care for your needs as well. Second of all, family forms at the cross. Family forms at the cross. Interesting, when the soldier pierces his side, there's some medical things that happen, biological things, but what comes out? It's blood and water. Um, two fluids we associate with birth. It's water and with blood. And here at the cross, there's a, the birth of a new community, both John and Mary being a biological community, but the church. There's a birth of a new community, the church, and it's illustrated with a rebel being welcomed into the family, which, by the way, we were all rebels, enemies of God, distant aliens from him, right? All of us were like that thief with nothing to offer. And he's welcomed in and made a new family. He, he came out of that place in paradise with a family prepared for him forever. Absolutely incredible. And then a new creation of a family for Mary, both a physical one, but also a spiritual one. Interesting, in Luke 18, Peter says this to Jesus, look, we have left our homes. In other words, like we left our families. We followed you. And Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brother or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God who will not receive many times more in this time in the age to come. Actually, some of the places say we will not receive a hundredfold from what they've given up. 
So if you follow Jesus, you get 100 children or more. 100 fathers, how's that? 100 mothers. And where, where, in, where do we receive that kind of family? Where do we ever get that? We're supposed to get it in the church with each other. The household of God. Acts 20, 28 says, Christ purchased the church of God, his household, his people, his community, with his very own blood. The body of Christ is a gift from the cross. So second of all, family forms at the cross. Um, and we all, um, I guess the, the challenge to us is all to take steps towards what does it look like to genuinely be a family of God together and caring for the needs of each other, um, treating each other like brothers and sisters in Christ. Brian, you can bring the, uh, the worship team up. Fairly communion-focused uh, these, these four weeks since um, we're gathering at the cross. Um, every single week, um, we gather around the table here and we reenact the gospel once again, over and over and over again. We picture it when we, when we remember the bread, his body, and the cup being his blood, and we, we remember it as we do it together as a household. We point once again at the cross, and we, we fix our attention here um, so that we get realigned and we can go into the world and shape it in a different way. As we saw today, um, as we come around the table we want to remember him. And we look up and pay attention to behold Jesus when we come around this table and remember him. And in the same way, it says he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it. Do it remembering me. So as we come together, we want to remember him. Remember what he did for us. Remember what he did for you. Because we do that, we behold him, and it changes our hearts. And secondly, as we come around the table, we Celebrate Jesus as the one who's brought us into a new family. 1 Corinthians 10, 16, 17 says, The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, it is, not, is it not participation in the body of Christ? For there is one bread, and we who are many are one body, for we all partake of, of the one bread. So we come around the table and remember Jesus by beholding him, and remember that we are one body that he's brought together and purchased with his blood. And we should come forward giving thanks. Here at the vineyard, there's a table here, uh, one on the side and one in the back. Um, it is for those who know Jesus. Um, like the thief, we don't have to have anything to commend ourselves other than Jesus himself to come to the table. We break off the bread, remembering his body, and we just dip it in the cup, remembering his blood shed. Pray with me, and as the music begins, you are invited to the table. Lord, we are, um, we are small. As we consider the universe and history and creation and um, and the, the wonder of the cross is that every person matters to you. That our needs, our redemption, the things we think about, the things that we stress over, 
the cares of our heart, our relationships around us, all of them matter more to you than they matter to us. You came and you came in our midst and you walked among us and you gave your life in order to redeem us to yourself and change everything. Thank you for the bread and the, the one loaf that reminds us that we have been made part of the household of God. We've gained a whole new family. We give you thanks for it. And we thank you that we didn't have to offer anything because we didn't have anything to offer, but you welcome people with empty hands and needy souls, and you pour out riches on us. So, Lord, this table, remembrance of the beautiful thing you did on our behalf, we give you thanks for it. And as we take it together, we do it to honor you. In Jesus' name, amen.